This past week, I was uh, in Dallas, Texas for two days for baseball chapel meetings and heard a story that illustrates the importance of clear communication. The story was told of a um, politician who was running in a very tight race in uh, New Mexico, and it had come, become increasingly clear that the difference in the election would depend upon the Native American vote. And so this campaign decided to travel to a large reservation. They took along with them an interpreter. And uh, as they got there, after a cordial greeting, the politician began through his uh, translator to make his case why they should vote for him. He said, you know, I've always cared about the plight of the Native American. And he heard from the audience, waka waka, waka waka. He says, I've always, uh, I've always cared about you. If you vote for me, I will fight for your cause. And he hears, waka waka, waka waka. He says, if elected, I'll get you jobs so that you no longer get these humiliating government handouts. He heard waka waka. He says, I will find work for you so that you can regain your dignity, so that you can earn what you receive, so that you can earn your benefits, so that you can work, so that you can buy your own homes and cars and have your own education programs. I will work hard for you so that you will be able to then work for yourself. And by now, man, the crowd is just in a frenzy. They're yelling, waka waka, waka waka, waka waka. Then he walked away and he was very pleased with his performance and, and the response. And he goes to, and, and he asked about going to the restroom before he got back in the car for a long journey. And uh, the gentleman he asked said, well, you know, we don't have any indoor plumbing. And so the nearest place that you can use a facility is that outhouse. You can see it. It's about 50 yards through this pasture that was filled with cows. And he said, you know, you can just go there. And as it was nighttime, he said, I, just, I would just warn you, you know, be careful as you walk to the outhouse that you don't step in any cow waka waka. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I thought, you know, in, in a similar manner, Tim, uh, Timothy has been uh, instructed by Paul to make sure that he doesn't step in any cow waka waka as he journeys with the Lord. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me and we find encouragement from the words of the Apostle Paul directly to Timothy and then to us that we are to fulfill our ministry. He tells Timothy, fulfill the ministry that God has entrusted to you. Be careful as you live and as you walk and as you, you know, proceed through life to make sure that you don't fall into any traps and any snares. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, we started to look at this the last time we're together. He writes, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers and according in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. In our last study, we began to examine what it takes in order to finish strong and fulfill the ministry entrusted to each one of us by God as God's people. And from the passage, we'll examine two truths. The first we looked at last time and it had to do with this truth, and that is simply this. In order for you and I to finish strong and fulfill the ministry that God has entrusted to us, we must once and for all recognize our individual accountability before God. Every one of us will give an account of God, an account to God of our life. 
you know, as was mentioned, uh, you know, that he's a God who's there. He sees all things. All things are open and laid bare to him to whom we have to do. Every one of us who have come to faith in Christ, and I'll talk more about that as we go through this, but have come into that dynamic relationship through faith in Christ by hearing the word of God, trusting in him, recognizing that we're sinners, repenting of sin, turning to God, trusting in Christ and his plan, his death on the cross and his resurrection. The Bible says he gives us the right to be called children of God to those who believe in his name. And there's a dynamic that takes place. We're born again. We're, we're, we're born into the family of God. We have a new nature. All things are new. All things old, you know, pass away and all things become new. We're to walk in a manner, live in a manner that's worthy of such a calling who called us from darkness to light so that we can proclaim the excellencies of him who has done so. And there's a new dynamic that takes place. We're required to live a different way. But we're not only we're required to live a different way, but we're enabled by God to do so. He never asks us to do something that he knows is possible for us to do. He has entrusted to us, enabled us by the empowerment of the Spirit of God who lives within the life of every believer to live in a manner that's worthy of his calling of us. And so there's a dynamic that takes place and we're to recognize as we move through life that God sees everything. Even the things that you don't think that he sees, he will see for the purpose, the good things, to reward us one day when we stand as believers before the Bema seat judgment of Jesus Christ to give an account of our life subsequent to salvation for the purpose of recompense or reward. All people I mentioned will stand before Jesus Christ as their judge because the Father has given Jesus the right to judge all of humanity because of the sacrifice that he made on behalf of all mankind. And as a result, there's two judgments. One is the Bema Seed judgment, which all believers appear before for the purpose of rewards. There's the great white throne judgment where all unbelievers will appear because of their rejection of the grace that's been offered to them through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That all people will be judged by Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the second thing that we must do, not only recognize our accountability before God, but the second thing that we must do is to follow what the Bible teaches. You know, this is one of those ones where I want to just put a big duh. You know, it's like duh. You know, I mean, how, how, how simple is that as far as just, you know, counsel and how wise that is, you know, to follow what the Bible teaches. You know, the Word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. You know, the whole purpose of the Word of God is not only to introduce men and women to the Savior, but also to give us instruction as to how to live once we're born again, become children of God. He says, follow what the Bible teaches. And that's always wise counsel, but we'll see specifically four things that are brought out in this passage that we must do. There's a recognition of what God requires of each one of us who are truly children of God. And the first thing that he requires is very simple, and that's this. This is for everyone. Now, remember, specifically, he's referring to Timothy in his role as pastor and overseer of the church that was at Ephesus, but also, generally, he's speaking to all God's people. This is something that all of us are required to do, not just those who are paid professionals. You know, what's interesting to me is to see how oftentimes in life we throw back to others, well, that's your job, that's what you get paid to do, and we should at least expect you to do that. I mean, let's stop and face it for a second. The minimum that we should expect of anyone who is being paid from the resources of God's people is that they follow their instruction as to what their job is. I mean, that's the minimum. I mean, it's interesting. I'm kind of an enigma everywhere that I go. You know, I was at baseball chapel meetings with 30 guys from all over the country. And then there was another conference that was there. And you're kind of thrown in. And most of the people that are there are full-time uh, vocational Christian workers. I mean, that's what they get paid to do. 
And as a result, it's always interesting to hear what some of the problems and complaints are, kind of sitting as it, as it is as an outsider, but recognizing that, you know, to be able to just say, look, you know what, the minimum that people expect of you is to do what God expects of you. I mean, and that's a stewardship issue. If you're not, not going to do what God expects you to do, then why should we support you financially to do that? It's like, it's like supporting missionaries that go somewhere overseas and decide, you know what, we're not here to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We just recognize what a great place this is to hang out, and we think we'll just golf and, you know, go to the cantina, you know, and do de- table dances or something, you know? It's like, well, well you know what? No, oh, that's fine. If you like it, you do what you want, but we're not going to fund that adventure, you know, it's like, you know, with our children, it's like, okay, you want, you know, and, and like our daughter's away at school right now, I tell her her scholarship is renewable at the end of every semester. <laughs> you know, she'll have to appear before the scholarship committee. And we're going to take a good hard look at it because we're not to fund her vacation. And you're not going to go on vacation, then do like I go on vacation. Go work first, save your money, and then go on vacation because no one's sending me anywhere for free. It's like, wow, really? Oh. So... What is it that God expects of us? Well, number one, I'm a little bit fired up, and I'm going to have to slow it down a little bit here because <laughs> you're going to be exhausted b- before I am. Number one, here's what God expects of all pastors, teachers. He expects them to preach the Word of God. What a revolutionary thought. To preach the Word. Now, He also expects that of you and I, and the reason for it is simply this. The word preach simply means to proclaim as a herald or a messenger. A herald or messenger went into town to proclaim the message entrusted to him to proclaim to the people. Oftentimes, a herald or messenger comes in, the trumpets go off. One of you guys could have probably did that a lot better, but you're not here, and I am, so I'm stuck just having to improvise. So, anyway, they, they announce that he's coming, and then they listen intently to what is being said. Maybe the arrival or the appearance of the governor. Think about that from a spiritual standpoint. We're to warn the world that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is going to come one day to judge the living and the dead. They were to proclaim a message sent to proclaim. Oftentimes it had to do with, hey, just want to let you know, there's a new law. And here's what the law is. And here's what you will be required to be obedient to. If you're obedient, you'll be blessed. If you're disobedient, rebel, you'll be cursed. You'll be thrown in prison. You'll be fined, whatever. We're just going to give you a heads up. We're going to warn you that this is the law. And they would proclaim that. Now, you would think, well, why would Timothy be hesitant to do that? You know, we already learned that, you know what? He, He wasn't exactly a guy that was full of confidence. You know, he looked at himself and measured himself against the Apostle Paul and thought, man, you know what? I don't have the intellect that Paul has. I don't have the educational background that he has. I don't have the reputation that he has. You know, uh, some people were criticizing because he was too young, in their opinion, to be telling them what they needed to hear as a messenger of God. And so they tried to throw him in a category of, you know what? You don't have anything to offer me. You know what? You would have been around as long as I've been around. Then you can start to share something with me. And it's like, you know what? That's not the point. The point is, is that he is there to declare a message entrusted to him by one who has greater authority. And the greatest authority of all is God himself who has entrusted to you and I a message that he wants us to deliver and declare before the entire world. And what is that message? Simply put, it is this. It is by God's grace that you can be saved from the judgment and the consequences and the condemnation of sin. For it's by grace we're saved through faith. Trusting what God says is true, 
that we are all sinners separated from God. None are righteous, no, not one. We've all fallen short. We're all on the road to hell. We're all condemned before God. The world is condemned already. The message is to get people to understand their sinfulness before God and also the grace of God that says, you know what, but if you turn from sin and turn to God and trust in Him, believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you, believing that He rose again from the dead, you shall be saved. That's the simplicity of the message that has been entrusted to us to preach or proclaim before the world. Now, when you look at this, he's not just referring to the simplicity of that message because, let's face it, a message of sin is something people don't want to hear. I don't know how many times I have heard, and you have too, how many people have you come into contact in life that says, but I'm a good person. How many of you heard? Raise your hand. Have you heard that? Look at that. Look around. Everyone's heard that. But I'm a good person. Somehow we've got to convince them that they're not. (laughs) That's just the reality of it. How many of you heard, well, you know what? I do this, 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 and this. So therefore, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven, I hope. Have you heard that? That's not grace. That's not, you know, unmerited favor. That's working your way to heaven, and you can't do it. We've got to convince people that. And you know what? And Timothy lived in the world that we live in, and he knew that that message would not be well-received by people as he shared it. People want to hear, I'm okay, you're okay. My book's going to be, I'm screwed up, and so are you. And, 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 and then they want to hear that, you know what? And even if you're just a little bit, you can make up for it by your own efforts. You can work your way into God's favor. That's what people want to hear. Timothy knew that. You know that. I know that. There's nothing new under the sun, but that's not the message. And the message is not our opinion. The message isn't even our idea. The message is to proclaim the word of God, which is, as he's already mentioned, the full counsel of God. All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, training in righteousness. The full counsel or their whole purpose of God, the scripture, the sacred writings, that's what we are to proclaim. And how much more should those who get paid to do it be faithful in doing it? The point is we all should do it. Throughout Paul's divine instruction to Timothy, he has continually emphasized the importance of guarding that which has been entrusted to you. He emphasized avoiding worldly chatter or getting off on tangents or being sidetracked and talking about things that have no eternal value. He warned about retaining the standard of sound words which you have been, has been entrusted to you, of accurately handling or rightly dividing the word of truth. Man, it has been an emphasis over and over again, and it's because he says preach the word. Why is it so important that we preach the word of God or proclaim the message of God? Paul writes to the Romans and he says this, how can, unbelie- how can unbelievers believe something that they haven't heard? Right? How can unbelievers believe something they haven't heard? If all they heard is that you're okay, I'm okay, we're all good to a certain degree, God grades on the curve, you know what, and if he doesn't, then work your way and make your efforts and do this and do that and the religious systems of the world, man, you have to go to church so many times, you have to do this so much of the time, you have to give so much of your money, you have to stop doing this, start doing that, doing this, doing that, don't do this, don't do that, do this, and that's all that we hear, it's infinitum. And every religious organization has a different set of rules and instructions as to what we're supposed to do to be right with God. And the reality of it is, is that he says to the Romans, he says, look, how can people believe if they haven't heard? And how can they hear unless someone was sent? 
And how can we send them unless we send them and beautify the glad tidings of, of those feet who bring such good news? The point is this. Why do we proclaim the word of God? Because people can't believe in a Savior until we share with them the message of first their sinfulness and their need for a Savior and then who he is. How simple is that? But that's what we have to do. And it's not in eloquence of speech. And it's not in all these things that we think. The Apostle Paul said, brethren, he, told, he writes to the Corinthians, I didn't come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. See, oftentimes we get confused about whether somebody's preaching the word or not preaching the word based on their energy level, based on their humor, based on this, that, or the other thing. And you know what? And that's not the litmus test of preaching the word. We've got to get to a point where we recognize and understand. I'll give you an example. We're in this meeting this past week, and we had a whole bunch of guys that were there. And you know, we got 30 guys who do major league teams. We've got 150 guys who do minor league teams. They weren't at this meeting, but we were there representing them. We've got another 50-some people who do Latin America teams. And the door's been open to Venezuela and a whole bunch of other cities and countries around the world. It's incredible what God is doing. And the one thing that, that I, and the reason that I, that I was so excited to get involved is they asked Linda and I to participate was that the people that are there, the board directors, the executive director, they got one thing that we have in common more than anything else, and that is their love of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love, their love for the Word of God. Preach the Word. Proclaim God's truth, because it's God's truth that empowers people to become, go from being dead spiritually to alive spiritually. And we've had, in the last several years, we've had people in different cities who were there for other reasons, and they put aside proclaiming and teaching the Word of God. And so those confrontations will be there to weed them out and to get people in that will proclaim the full counsel of God. People that, when you get to a certain passage, would skip over because they didn't want to offend the people they were speaking to, and on and on it goes. And one of the guys, in a heated conversation, said, you know, are you going to tell me that I'm not preaching the Word of God? I am. And it went back and forth, and it was like, but you know what? But there was something missing in the man's ministry. There was something missing from an effectiveness and fruitfulness. There was something missing from authority and power. There was just something missing, and it was really hard to be able to put your finger on it because it wasn't like he was preaching heresy. It wasn't like he just was skipping the things he didn't like people to hear. And so it became a matter of, well, what does it mean to preach the Word of God? And I am in full agreement with the, the gentleman who wrote this. By far the most reliable and effective way to proclaim all of God's Word is to preach expositorily. In his book, The Ministry of the Word, William Taylor writes this. He says, by expository preaching, I mean that method of pulpit discourse which consists in the consecutive interpretation and practical enforcement of a book of the sacred canon. Meaning this, that you pick up a book and you go from the beginning of the book to the end of the book and you, and you explain it and you build upon what is there in the right context 
and you give application and you give meaning and understanding to what is said. He said exposition is the presentation to the people in an intelligible and forcible manner of the meaning of the sacred writer. It's the honest answer which the teacher gives after faithful study to these questions. What is the mind of the Holy Spirit in this passage and what is the bearing on related Christian truths or on the life and conversation of the Christian himself? In other words, how are we to apply these things that we just heard in a practical relevant manner. How are we to apply these things? What we've done in Baseball Chapel in the last couple of years is we've decided that, you know what, the only way we'll be able to accomplish this is to tell people in the month of, let's say, June next year or July next year, we'll take the book of James and we're going to go through James 1, the first weekend of the series, James 2, the second weekend, third, fourth, and fifth. If there's five weekends, that'll be the book, one of the books that we'll pick. And the reason for it is it forces guys to at least, and, and that's as far as the, because you're, you're constraining the Holy Spirit well, wait a minute. You know what? If you can't have the liberty and freedom to preach a message from James chapter 1, any message that God leads you to preach that's relevant and practical as it relates to the people that you're with, you're missing the point. And we found that, you know what? And there's continuity. So when guys are here in Anaheim, they hear James 1. When they go on the road, they hear James 2. They come back, they hear James 3. And it's always being built upon consecutively. So there's an understanding, finally, of a whole book. There are people out there, Christians, who have never been through an entire book of the Bible ever in their life from start to finish. And the reason for it is what? Because we live in a culture that wants to hear topical things. I just want topical things. I want you to pick a verse out of the air, and then I want you to just kind of make up a message that has to do with it. And it's like, that's nonsense. The full proclamation of the Word of God, the full counsel of God, is the right way to preach. And the reason it's the right way to preach is because it's God's Word and not man's opinion. Period. It comes with the authority of God. It reveals the mind of God in every area of life, even those areas that are tough to learn and tough to accept. I've been in many Bible studies where people are sitting there, and I'll go like this. Oh, look what's coming up right here. And I'm looking at, and I know, because I know what's going on in the life of some of the people that are sitting there. And I'm looking at this going... Ooh, this is going to go over really big, but Lord, I'm just trusting you. Here we go. We had a Bible study when I was teaching the Rams, and it was was here, and these walls were knocked out there, and it was over on that side of the wall. And it was a Bible study on sexual purity as it came to going through the book of 1 Corinthians. We got to chapter 6. And now, you know, I'm not saying that guys in the NFL are any worse than people that you know or associate with, but all I'm saying is this, that I knew how relevant this was going to be. Man, and I, was, and I was just going through, and I was explaining the passage. And, man, there was guys sitting there, man, they were like this, and their knees were, they were, they were, they were shaking. Man, one guy, man, he was like, if you ever saw broadcast news where the dude was like, he finally got his chance to broadcast news, and he was sweating profusely. I mean, it was almost like, like a, a, a hose squirting off the top of his head. This guy was just, it was just pouring down off him. He's like this. You know, he's like this. He came over to me afterwards and said, hey, man, I got to go. I said, oh, come on, hang around. We'll talk for a little bit. He goes, no, man, I got to get out of here before I get hit with lightning. <laughs> I said, well, if you think that's going to happen, run, baby, because I don't want to be next to you. You know, not that God can't just hit directly, but, you know, I don't want to be guilty by association. So, and it was like, but you know what? There's a guy that because he was, he was confronted with the word of God. In fact, I had a guy in Dallas, Texas this week who came up to me. His name's Norm Evans. He played 30 years ago on the undefeated Dolphins team. Uh, that still is the only team that will ever probably ever be undefeated in football. And he came to me and said, hey, you know what? He goes, you know what? I just was flooded. I had flashbacks of a memory that I had with you. I said, what was that? He goes, remember the time I came to UC Irvine when the Rams were there for training camp, and I wanted to tell him about the conference that was coming up? I said, yeah, I remember that. He goes, why well, sat on your Bible study? I 
said, I remember that. He goes, let me just tell you something. He goes, when you opened the word of God and you preached on the importance of sexual purity before all those guys that were there, he goes, man, I, I, I still to this day remember vividly the feeling and the impression that I had of the Spirit of God just moving out and convicting the hearts that were there that day. And he said, and you became at that point one of my five fam- favorite Bible teachers. And I had never known that. And I thought, wow, you know what? And I give God all the credit and glory for it because, you know what, all I'm doing is doing what he tells me to do. That's just preach the Word of God, the full counsel of God, not worrying about who will be offended by that. Taylor goes on and says, let it never be forgotten then that he who would rise to eminence and usefulness in the pulpit and become wise and winning souls must say of the work of this ministry, this one thing I must do. He must focus his whole heart and life upon the pulpit. He must give his days and nights to the production of those addresses by which he seeks to convince the judgments and move the hearts and elevate the lives of his hearers. There is no more important ministry than for a pastor to preach the word of God, specifically as it relates to Timothy and in general as it relates to all of God's people, for we have been entrusted with the message that the world needs to hear and we are to preach the word of God. We are to proclaim, in other words, God's truth, not hesitating because we know that people aren't going to want what we have to say or hear what we have to say, but trusting God that, you know what, that God knows that it's in that demonstration of his power in the life of another person. No one can believe in the Savior until they've heard from him, and no one will want to believe in him until they hear the truth of the word of God. And we'll talk more about that as we move along. He also goes on and says this. He says not only to preach the word back in chapter uh, uh, 4, verse 1, but he says in verse 2, I'm sorry, he says, but also to be ready. He says to be ready carries the idea of being prepared for that moment in time when all the training comes to light. I've been working around athletics all my life, specifically the last 20 years looking at professional athletes. And I'm here to tell you this, that years of training, preparation, exercise, diet, discipline, self-denial come to fruition in that one shining moment in time. One of the guys who played on the Angels expressed it the best after the World Series when he was interviewed and he was asked, you know, what did you, what did you think about what was going on? He said, you know what, I have been preparing for a Game 7 all of my life. Since I was four years old playing with my dad out in the backyard, I have been preparing all of my life to be at the right time and right place in a game seven to be the person that's in that position to be used for my team's purposes and for a Christian for the glory of God. I have been preparing for that all my life. Anybody that's ever been involved in athletics, how many of you have played any kind of sport at all? and would go out in your backyard or down to the field or wherever it was, and you would pretend, man, game seven, you know what, bases loaded, you know there's two outs, tying runs on third, winning runs on second, and it's like, man, boom, down the line, Garrett Anson, oh, down in the corner, <laughs> there it is, there it is, all my life, I've been preparing for that one moment. How incredible is that? How awesome is that? When I was playing basketball, I used to go out, you know, and back in the East, you know, you shovel the snow off, you know, and, and then the change would be frozen and the ball would get stuck. And so you knew you had one chance, you know, if you made it, you know, you knew you made it. And uh, there was never an argument. There it is, you made it. But uh, so I'd be out in the backyard and be like, you know, three, two, one, and take the shot. This would be four three-pointers. You'd take the shot and you go up. And, you know, and if I'd miss it, it was like, foul, he got fouled. Seriously, I did it all the time. It's like, oh, I got fouled, you know? It's like, oh, it's beautiful, you know? Go to the line. Oh, man, I still get a chance, you know? So even when you didn't do it, you know, you still did it. Listen, it's like that in every area of life. We hear it when the Olympics come around. We see that one shining moment where the per- per- person stands on the stand and they get a medal. But you know what? It doesn't even begin 
to help us to understand everything that went up to that moment in time. That's why I love when they do stories about people and you see all the obstacles, what they've overcome, the tenacity, the hard work, the determination, the dedication, everything that goes into it to get to that point. You know, we saw it, you know, in the World Trade Center. It's like, you know, firemen and policemen, they do that every day. And all of a sudden, now they're heroes. They do it every day. An entertainer, an overnight success. There's no such thing as an overnight success. People have toiled for years and years in obscurity, doing the thing that they love to do because that's what they love to do. And all of a sudden, they're surprised as anybody else. We're all sitting around in the locker room after the game, World Series. Angels, you know, World Series champions. We're all looking at each other. Garrett and I are sitting there, and we're eating, and he's looking at me. He goes, what just happened? I said, I don't know, but it's pretty cool. You know, this is great. Wow, look, there's a trophy, and there's stuff. I mean, this is amazing. What happened? It was like, well, what happened when you finally are used? Now, put in a spiritual sense. We need to be prepared for that moment in time when God wants to work through you and I as his servants. How do we prepare ourselves? How are we to be ready, to be earnest, to be eager? How are we to be prepared for that moment in time where God wants to use us for his glory and for his kingdom? Simple, we've got to love the Lord with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We've got to be dedicated to the Lord and to the word of God. We have to be disciplined to study the Bible, to know Scripture, to, to hear it as much as we can, to read it, to study it, to memorize it, to meditate on it, to, 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 to deny ourselves and to walk with Him in obedience. We're to do all of these things. We can't get enough of the Word of God. We live in a culture, we've got three, four, five Bibles, you know, oftentimes sitting in our homes, never at once being opened. I just heard on the radio coming in here that 100 people per hour in Indonesia are coming to faith in Jesus Christ and they don't have Bibles so they can learn and grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. And we've got access to them. I want to I just, oh, I can share a story with you from, we were in Dallas and one of the guys who played, um, he played for the Mariners, he played uh, for San Diego this year. He came up to me and he was all excited. He said, Chuck, you know those tapes that you gave me when we were in town for chapel? He said, the, the book of Romans. He goes, it was the first time ever in our home Bible study in Vancouver, Oregon. I mean, sorry, Vancouver, Washington, our home Bible study. He said, we take the tape and we stick, we stick a tape player out in the middle of the room and we put in the tape and we go through it verse by verse like you've done. And we go through it. It's the first time that people in our Bible study have ever done that. And you should see we've got a whole bunch of people that now want to come to our Bible study because they heard we're doing something different. Different? Seriously, we're doing something different. What are you doing? We're going through the Bible verse by verse. Woo! Never heard of that. Hey, and I also want to just, uh, this past week we were doing an audit of, of what's going on in the tape ministry, and I just want to, to encourage you that these are the kind of things that are happening all over the place. In the last 16 months, we've given away almost 11,000 tapes. And I praise God for that because God is using his word to reach people in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. And all of a sudden, all these other guys that were at the conference heard about the tapes. And man, you know, I could have set up a little table there and, you know, start taking orders. I got people coming from all over the place going, man, I want some of those tapes. I want, I want to learn. I want to grow. I want to study. And you know what? And it's like, praise God. And you know what? We're going to do everything we can to get it to them, aren't we? Because there is nothing more important than being ready for those moments in time. And you know what? And we're ready because we have been prepared for that divine appointment. You know, I was reading on the way back on the plane, Acts chapter 8 again, just as a reminder of divine appointments. Here's Philip, you know, and, and God says, leave the revival and go out to this deserted road. 
And when he went out to that deserted road, here comes the Ethiopian eunuch and, and, all, of, and all of his majesty, secretary of treasury, and all of the, you know, the, 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 the proceed, proceeding of people, this parade of people that are there. And he's standing on the top and he's reading the scroll of Isaiah and he doesn't understand what he's reading. And I can just see Philip jogging along next to him going, hey, uh, do you understand what you're reading? And he's there, you know what, I'm not really sure. Is this is, is a prophet talking about himself or is he talking about someone else? Hey, he's talking about someone else. Would you mind if I explain it to you? No, come on up. And he begins to share with him. See, you know what? Let me, divine appointments, you know, are only sudden to those not prepared. But to those who are prepared and ready and able to be used by God, let me tell you something about divine appointments. They happen every day. I see them every day because God has put us in a position who are ready, and so do you, who are ready and prepared to share the message that God has entrusted to us with those God brings into our path. Divine appointments are not rare to me. They're an everyday occurrence, and it's awesome. It's awesome to see. But you know what? We need to be ready. We need to be ready, as, as, as uh, Peter writes, but sanctify the Lord Jesus Christ in your hearts, always being ready or prepared to give an answer for the defense or the defense or an answer to the hope that is within you with gentleness. Always being ready. Are you ready? When somebody would say, hey, is he talking about himself or somebody else? What are you talking about? I'm going through a tunnel. Can you hear me? Oh, you know, it's like the old cell phone trick. Right, I'm going to lose you. You know, and it's kind of like, you know, hey, man, preach the word. Be ready. It's, it's God's word hidden deep within our hearts, an ongoing dedication, self-denial, spiritual discipline that keeps us ready for that special moment in time when God uses us to answer his divine call. There's no better place to be as a believer this side of eternity than being in the right place at the right time prepared to be used by God for his kingdom and for his glory. That is awesome. It's awesome. He says not only should we preach the word and be ready to be used by God, he says we're also to reprove. The word reprove refers to convincing people of sin. We should be in a position to convince people of sin, that sin is real, and God's claim that all men are sinners is true, that we're to use Scripture, all Scripture is profitable, we're to use Scripture for reproof. We've seen that already as we've gone through 2 Timothy. That's the beauty of going through a book study. These are things we've already learned as we've gone through it, that it's profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped to do the work, to be ready, right? To be ready. We're to use Scripture as the divine standard by which every thought Every principle, every act, and every belief is to be measured. I met with someone not too long ago who was wrestling with, as I mentioned, whether they were going to stay married or not. Every thought that they shared with me, I was able to counter that thought with the truth of God's word. You say this, but God says this. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, every thought and every temptation that he came up with, Jesus refuted that temptation with what? The truth of the word of God. But... God says, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. When Satan says, well, turn these stones into bread, but God says, you say, but God says. See, and, it's, and when we're in that position where we can say, you say, others say, people are telling you, but you know what? But God says. This is what God says. And it's to convince people that no one, you know, that no one measures up to God's standard. And that no one ever could. That was the purpose of God setting the laws he did so that we could all see what God knows about us. We can't measure up against God's standard of perfection and holiness. And sometimes we need to be... 
to get the attention of our audience. There was a gentleman who was there who was, uh, had, some, had a team in uh, New Orleans, a minor league baseball team, and he, and he was in, in t- contact with his, his uh, minor league guy throughout the season, and this guy sent him, um, he sent him the following as it related to the men he was ministering to in the New Orleans area, or as they say, New Orleans. So they, they, were, they were in that position. And here it is, the Ten Commandments in Cajun. Now, it's going to mean a lot more to them than maybe some of us, but I think you'll appreciate what he had to say. Commandment number one, God is number one and that's all. Number two, don't pray to nothing or nobody, just God. Number three, don't cuss nobody, especially the good Lord. Number four, it's Sunday. Why don't you pass yourself by God's house? Number five, your folks done did it all, listen to them. Number six, killing duck and fish, that's okay. People, no. Number seven, God gave you a wife, sleep with just her. Number eight, don't take nobody's boat or nothing else. Number nine, stop lying, your tongue going to fall out. And number ten, don't go wanting somebody's stuff. See, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a way to reach people with the truth of the Word of God. See, reproving is convincing others and helping others to understand that what he believes or is doing is wrong and that it doesn't measure favorably to God's standard. He says rebuke. The word rebuke, on the other hand, may have to do with the heart, with bringing a person under conviction of guilt. If you take the two together, basically the way it works is this. Is that you take and you say, listen, to reprove is to refute error or misconduct. You know, this is what you're saying and what you're saying is wrong. And here's why it's wrong, because this is what the word of God has to say. Rebuke, then, is to take it to the next level and say, and therefore, because this is what you believe and this is what you're doing, and what you believe and what you're doing is wrong, therefore, what you're doing is wrong, you, my friend, are guilty before God. Let me give you a perfect illustration of this found in 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel 12. Oh, and we're going to have to make this into another carryover to next week. Oh, but see, when you're doing a book study, you can do that. And then if I wouldn't have said that, you would have thought that's all I had prepared. 2 Samuel chapter 12. And we'll tie it all together because you know what? I'm telling you, this is a lot of stuff to take home and have to deal with. But deal with it we must because that is what God wants us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Second Samuel chapter 12 will help us to see and understand how reproving moves up to rebuking and this is the passage. In verse 27, we're told that what David had done was evil in the sight of God and anyone who knows anything about David's life realizes that David had a sexual relationship with a woman outside of the relationships that God said or a relationship that was approved by God. He had sex with another man's wife She then became pregnant through the process, and in the process of trying to cover up his sin, he took this man's this woman's husband and sent him to the front lines where he would be certainly murdered, as it turns out, in the battle that they were fighting. What David did was evil in the sight of God. Then the Lord sent in verse uh, chapter twelve, verse one. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, "There were two men in one city; the one rich and the other poor." The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little hue lamb, which he bought and nourished and grew up together with him and his children. 
It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Notice this. In this particular point, we see reproof. We see him reproving that person. And now we see in verse 5, Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who had done this deserves to die. And And he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, You are the man. You're the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. I gave you the house of Judah. I've given you everything, and then you have done this despicable thing. He says, I gave you everything that you needed, and you weren't content and satisfied. Why? Because you coveted your neighbor's wife. You're the man. See, he reproved him by telling him a story that he could identify with and realize that, man, what that guy did was wrong. What he did was wrong. And he recognized that anger, the anger of David burned against him and said, this guy, he's going to have to pay for what he did. He's going to have to make restitution. See, but then in verse 5, he moves from preaching to meddling. See? See, when you see that somebody else is guilty, it's very clear, very plain. And you know what? Thank God for a standard that we can hold other people accountable to God's standard. But just don't go applying that same standard to me. See, he went from preaching to meddling. But the beauty of all of it is, in verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from unrighteousness. He was convicted of his sin. It moved from reproving him to telling him a story about somebody else so he can identify with the guilt of that person to then rebuking him by saying, you know what, that's you. That is your life. To a point of repentance where he said, I've sinned before God. How oftentimes in life, as we talk to others, we see that, you know what, there are many times when they were blinded by their own sinfulness, where they don't even see their guilt before God, and our responsibility is to help reprove by using the Word of God, not our opinions, not what we think, and all those things, not what models are out there and what other books we've read. You know, what does God's Word have to say about what they're doing, what they're thinking, what they're saying, and be able to point them to the truth of the Word of God, the power of God, then to help them see that it's them that is guilty. When I first heard the gospel, it was very easy because of the presentation that was given to me. Going, man, you know what? All have sinned. You've sinned. Are you, are you perfect? And it was like, no, I'm not perfect. I've said that. I said that all my life. No, I'm not perfect, but I'm not bad. But that's not God's standard. The standard is perfection. Are you perfect? No, I'm not perfect. Wow, then I got a problem, huh? Yeah, you do. What, what should I do about it? You need to confess your sin before God and turn from sin and turn to God and throw yourself on God's mercy. And He will forgive you and cleanse you from all of it. And He will cause you to be born again into the the family of God, a child of God of those who believe in His name. See, we got to take people and we got to help them to see that, you know what, we're all guilty. But then make them understand that you, individually, personally, are guilty. It's one thing to say we're all guilty. It's another thing to say I'm guilty. 
See, a broken and contrite heart, David recognized in Psalm 51, verse 7, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, will never, you'll never despise. And you know, and after that person who is broken of their sins recognizes their sinfulness, you know, what's amazing is we've got to share that bad news with them. We, there's, there's a guy who played, uh, played for the Atlanta Braves. And every time it was time to go to chapel, he would walk through the clubhouse and go like this. Hey, turn or burn. And he go, he's going, hey, time to get right or get left. Come on, we're having chapel in five minutes. Come on, come on, let's go. Turn or burn, get right or get left. Come on. Now, I don't recommend that approach, you know, all the time. But one thing that I appreciate about the man is he took his responsibility of proclaiming the truth of God very seriously. You know, and other people sit and go, well, you know, that's probably not the right technique. That's probably not how you want to do it. That can cause some division and some dissension. And you know what? All I say is this. What's your technique? It's so easy to sit and, and see and criticize others you know, for what they should be doing when we ourselves are guilty of the same thing. You know, I heard often, and, and, and I, it's, I think it's an appropriate time to say this, I heard from many people who said, boy, you know what, you know, the Angels won the World Series and guys are being interviewed and I don't hear anybody, you know, doing like the Kurt Warner thing. I just want to proclaim Jesus Christ and Him Lord, you know, my Lord and Savior, you know, in a very public, visible manner. And I heard many people say, gosh, you know, I didn't hear anybody say that. Well, it's not because we weren't challenged as we've gone through the Word of God, but we've got to recognize and understand that everyone's at different levels of their growth spiritually. And so we've got to recognize that, you know what, the question that I had to them is this, you know what, do you always proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior in the midst of all of your success or accomplishments in life? Do you share with the people at your office? Do you share with your boss? Do you share with your neighbors? Do you share with your friends? Do you share with the people who cut your hair or dye your hair, or do your hair, whatever it is? And they'll cut, dye, do. That's, it just raises the price, by the way. Uh, you know, it's, it's progressive. And, you know, I mean, do you share with the gas station attendant? Do you share with your doctor? Do you share with the nurses? Do you share with, you know, do you share with the people at the grocery store? Do you share with the, I mean, you know, are you always sharing your faith boldly and, and visibly with those around us? And the answer is no, I'm not. And I, and I gotta confess before God that, you know what, I need to be more sensitive of people that are lost because I'm here as God's herald or, or messenger to proclaim that message. And yet I sit and I listen to people that, you know, it's so easy to take shots. I say, man, I'll tell you what, if 50 people ran up in front of you, turned on spotlights and had microphones in your face, you know, after you pee your pants, I'd like to hear what you have to say. And so, you know, the, the reality of it is, is that it's really easy to criticize others, but put yourself in their position. Now, obviously, a lot of it has to do with preparation and being ready. Being ready for that moment in time and realize that, you know what, if we win this thing, a million people are going to ask me, and you know what, I need to be prepared to give the Lord the glory in my life. So there's a, there's a spectrum there. I certainly don't condone it, and yet at the same time, I understand it, and that's why we are to exhort one another. We're to encourage each other. We're to build each other up. We're to pat each other on the back. We're to say, you know what? You had an opportunity there. You missed it. You kind of blew it. But you know what? Next time it happens, here's how you have to be thinking or here's how you must be prepared to be used by God for that moment in time when you're in the spotlight. Because, you know, that's our opportunity before the world to give the glory and praise to our Savior. Because you know what? Without him, I'm not even up at that moment in time. Without him, I'm not, I don't even have the abilities that I have. Without him, I haven't overcome all the obstacles that I did. You know what? It became increasingly obvious throughout the course of the season that, you know what? God's hand was on these men. And there was no way you can get around it. I mean, you just can't sit there and watch the things that happen and go, you know what? <laughs> There's no other explanation. Because everyone's good at a professional level. 
Everyone wants to win at a professional level. Everyone wants to beat the other team at a professional level. Everybody wants to hold the trophy at a professional level. You know what? And only one team in every sport gets to do it. And my prayer throughout the time that we have to share together is that every guy who's in any kind of sport recognizes those moments in time where God has anointed them, has chosen them to be the herald of his message before the world. We're to exhort one another. We're to exhort one another. We're to be spiritual cheerleaders that say, you know what? You sinned. You made a mistake. But you confessed your sin. And God is faithful when we're faithless. And now it's time to get up, dust yourself off, forget about it, and drive on. Forgetting what lies behind, I press on to the goal, I press on to the call of the upward goal of God in Christ Jesus. Every one of us have failed. But you know what? That is no reason that we cannot fulfill the ministry that God has given us. The devil wants us to believe that we're disqualified because of failure, and it's because of failure that Jesus Christ died for our sins. Get up and move on. Redeem the time wisely, for the days are short and these days are evil. Father, thank you for this time to be together. Thank you for the truth of your word. And God, I just pray that as we look at this, that we are to be men and women who preach the word of God. Preach the word. Reprove and rebuke to preach the word of God to those who have not heard because there's no way an unbeliever can ever believe without hearing the truth of God's word. Help us to use your standard as the standard by which every thought, word, deed must be measured. To help others see what you say is true, that they are sinful and separated from you to help them put it in the first person and make it personal. It's not just the world has fallen, but I am fallen. And the only way that I can get up is by accepting the hand of God that reached down in the form of the love that was shown on the cross, that God so loved the world, including me, that He sent His only begotten Son into the world, so that those who would, and He gave Him as a sacrifice, so that those who would believe upon Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. God, may we become more bold as your heralds or messengers. May we stop criticizing those who aren't doing what we think they should be doing. And instead of spending time criticizing them, let's use that time to be sharing your message with others. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. It's only because of your grace through faith that we're saved. It's a gift from God so that no one could ever boast. For we are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do those good works that you have prepared for us to do before the foundation of the earth. Lord, may we get busy serving you for your glory, for your kingdom, for your purposes. In Christ's name, amen.